Okay, well, good morning, everyone, again. Grace and peace to you. So we are beginning a, uh, a new series this morning on evangelism. Now, it's part of a larger project uh, that we've been working through for the better part of this year. Now, we've already completed a fresh look at worship, right? We spent some 10 weeks looking at uh, what we do here and why it matters. Um, and we just finished our series on the church community, looking at uh, why it's so important and what role it plays in God's plan for the world. And then that leaves just one thing left for us today, and that's mission. So our goal for the remainder of this series is to lay a fresh foundation when it comes to evangelism and to reinvigorate our passion for the gospel once more. And that's where we want to start, with the gospel. And what I want to do this morning is share three things about the gospel that will help us to see evangelism in a whole new way. Three things that will help us to see evangelism in a whole new way. And those three, three things are, we'll go through these throughout the sermon, the first is, the gospel is for us, but not about us. The second thing, the gospel is a royal proclamation. And the third thing, the gospel is public truth. So we'll work our way through those this morning. I'll try to give you a few implications of why these things matter. And then what we'll do the remainder of this series is we'll build on the foundation that we're laying today. So the goal is simple. If we can see the gospel in a new way, we can see evangelism in a new way. So let's begin with the first of those. The gospel is for us, but not about us. Now, there's a big difference between those two things, between something being for us and about us. So say it's someone's birthday, and you give them a gift. And let's say it's a book because they're a reader. Now, the book is for them, and obviously they're not going to come to the conclusion that it's about them. The book is about magic rings and mythical creatures and grand adventure. So in the same way, the gospel is not directly about us, but it is for us. So Jesus said to his disciples the night before his crucifixion, this is my body, which is for you, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Christ died for the ungodly. And in Galatians chapter 1, he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from the present evil age. So the gospel is for us. It's a gift that God has given to us in love. It's the means by which we are forgiven, by which we are redeemed from sin, by which we're delivered from the power of the enemy, and by which we're justified before God, and of course brought into eternal life. The gospel is for us. Now, though the gospel is for us, that doesn't necessarily mean it's about us. Instead, the gospel is about Jesus. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read, the apostle actually defines the gospel. Now, the Corinthians, um, they had the gospel all wrong. In fact, some of them in the congregation were actually denying the resurrection. If you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, that's what it's all about. 
Paul is saying, if you're denying that Jesus rose from the dead, we have no faith. So he's sort of uh, retracing old ground with the Corinthians. And he reminds them in verse 1, uh, he says, uh, he says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive. So in other words, he's saying, listen, guys, you know this. This is the message that I preached to you when I came to you for the very first time. And it's the same message that you received. And then he drives the, the, the point home even further. If you look at verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, meaning Paul's saying, I didn't invent this gospel. It goes back to the very beginning. Paul received it, and he transmitted it to them. So in effect, what Paul's doing is bringing the testimony of the whole church to bear against the Corinthians. He's saying, this is the gospel that I preach to you. Or rather, the gospel that I preach to you is the gospel. This is the one that's been handed down from the very beginning. So be careful he says, and, and don't tamper with the gospel. So, then, what is the gospel? Well, it's quite simple, and it's the story of Jesus. Again, let's look through uh, verses 3 through 5 once more. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So the gospel preached by the apostles and then handed down to the next generation is simply the major events of Jesus' life. Paul says this is the gospel. He died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. So as I said, the gospel is certainly for us. It's for our salvation. It's for our redemption, but it's not directly about us, meaning the content of the gospel message is about Jesus. And what the gospel does is it tells the story of Jesus. That's what Paul says. He died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. Now, of course, the scriptures confirm this. Now, Acts is the most obvious place to go, and there we can see what the gospel is by looking at how it's preached, looking at what the apostles were originally saying when it came to the good news. And we'll look at two sermons quickly uh, by Peter, one to the Jews and another to the Gentiles. So the first sermon comes on the hills of Pentecost. Remember, the Spirit descends. There's chaos out in the streets. And everyone's confused about what's going on until Peter stands up to preach. And what's the content of Peter's message? Well, it's simply the life of Jesus. This is Acts chapter 2. Now, he breaks it down into four chapters, beginning with Jesus' ministry. He reminds them, Acts 2.22, that Jesus was, and I quote, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. So he says, you guys know, Jesus was someone who went about ministering, someone whom God sort of certified by his miracles and wonders that he performed. And then from Jesus' ministry, Peter moves to the crucifixion. And he accuses the people about Jesus, whom you nailed to the cross, or to a cross, by the hands of godless men. 
chapter 2, verse 23. And then he moves to the resurrection. But God raised him up again, verse 24, Peter says. And he draws upon the scriptures, specifically uh, Psalm 16, to explain the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. And then his message culminates in Jesus' exaltation. He says, Acts 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So Peter's preaching in Acts 2 matches almost identically, identically with Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15. Both Paul and Peter are simply telling Jesus' story. This was his ministry. He was put to death, but God raised him up and exalted him to become Christ and Lord. Now the next sermon comes in Acts 10. This is the first time that the gospel is preached to Gentiles. So the first time it sort of goes beyond the borders of Israel. And once again, Peter sticks to his uh, uh, pattern and he narrates the life of Jesus. And he begins again with his ministry, saying, Acts 10, 38, You know of Jesus and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He says, you know about this. And then he moves to the crucifixion, Acts 10, 39. He says, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And then to the resurrection, Acts 10, 40. God raised him up on the third day. And this time, Peter adds mention of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, saying that the apostles ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, Acts 10, 41. And then... Jesus, I mean, uh, Peter wraps up his sermon with Jesus' exaltation, saying that the man once crucified has been, Acts 10.42, appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So you see what the apostles are doing. I'd encourage you guys, do some homework, read the rest of Acts, look specifically at Acts chapter 13. See how Paul preaches the gospel. He does the same thing, except he starts all the way back with Israel, and he leads through that, and he just tells Jesus' story, and it ends with him being enthroned. So, the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about what he did. It's about who he is. So, what I'm pushing back on here, and what I'm trying to sort of change in the way we approach evangelism, is the tendency to make the gospel about us. Rather than a story about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, we sometimes make the gospel about us and about our destiny, about how we can escape hell and go to heaven. So a couple weeks ago, I found myself at Little Caesars, um, as one does when they're hungry for something that tastes like cardboard. And uh, as I was paying the cashier, I looked down into the tip jar, and sticking out was a little gospel tract. Uh, there it is. You probably can't read any of that. Um, well, it says in big letters on the top, the only way to heaven. So imagine you pick that up for the first time. And immediately, I think what you're going to come, the conclusion you're going to come to is that the gospel is a message about you. It's a message about how you, as an individual, can go to heaven. It's a message about the only way to heaven. And then the track proceeds to demonstrate the way to heaven with an alliteration. 
recognize, realize, and receive. So one must recognize their condition as a sinner. They must realize what their deeds deserve, the second death. And then they are free to receive eternal life through Christ. Now, all that's true, right? No one's disputing that we're sinners, that because of that we deserve judgment, and that Christ is the only way to escape that judgment. That's absolutely true. But do you see how what we find here and what we find in a lot of other gospel presentations is different from what the apostles are doing? The apostles are telling a story about Jesus, and they're walking their hearers through the major events of his life. This was his ministry. He was put to death. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand on high. That's what the apostles are saying. And we're telling a story about ourselves. We're telling a story about how can we get to heaven. Now, there are two problems this creates, okay? The first is that it turns the story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus into a story about me and my personal salvation. And rather than inviting us to find our place in Jesus' story, it invites us to find a place for Jesus in our story. So fundamentally, in this scheme, the gospel is how you go to heaven, and Jesus is how you get there. We want to reverse that. The gospel is a story about Jesus, and we want to find our, our story, our story, our place in his story. So the trouble is that it's more about us than it is him. And in fact, and I don't want to pick on this track, I'm not trying to, there's just no mention of who Jesus is or what he's done. It's about us and how we can go from one place to another. And my fear is that what happens is that Jesus gets instrumentalized. He becomes a means to an end. You know, he's our ticket in, but after that, we have no need of him. He gets us in and we move on. And the second problem is that it turns a very cosmic and universal story about how God is making all things new into an individual story about how we as individuals can escape one fate and receive another. The gospel, as it's presented in this tract, is almost entirely disconnected from the biblical storyline. The biblical storyline starts with creation. It proceeds through all the way to the end when God redeems and renews what has been spoiled and destroyed. It's not about how Jesus fulfills God's purpose for the entire world, but about how we can jump ship and leave this world behind. So listen, my point is, is very simple, is that the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. It's for our salvation. It's for our forgiveness. It's so that we can escape the wrath of God. It's so that we can be justified, redeemed, and adopted into God's family. But it's principally, first and foremost, a story about Jesus. It's a story about his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So you say, okay, I get it. The gospel is about Jesus, and it's for us. So what changes? Well, I think principally it's how we evangelize. It's not our job to convince people that they're sinners. It's not our job to argue with them the, about the existence of God, though we may have to do those. Rather, it's our job, first and foremost, to tell them Jesus' story and what it means. It's to tell them Jesus' story 
and what it means. So what we're separating here is the life of Jesus from its implications. The gospel is the story about the life of Jesus. Its implications is that we're on the wrong side of things, that we can be forgiven, and so on and so forth. So listen, we believe that the man from Nazareth, who was put to death on a cross, has been raised from the dead, and that God has exalted him to become Lord over heaven and earth. Now, what does that mean? That's what we're telling people, that, that, that event that happened. That's what we're telling them. And what does it mean? Well, it means that he's defeated death. It means that he can take away sin. It means that he's coming again one day to put things right for good. And that those who receive him will be given the right to enter into the joy of his kingdom, but that those who deny him will be left outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel is for us, but not about us. It's about Jesus. And that leads us to the second point, is that the gospel is a royal proclamation. At its basic and most fundamental level, the gospel is an announcement that Jesus is king. It's an announcement that Jesus is king. And the gospel culminates not with his death on the cross, but with his resurrection and exaltation in heaven. When the gospel becomes a story about us, we miss this almost entirely. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven are often overlooked. They're tacked on, or they're treated as if they were little more than a happy ending. For instance, our tract doesn't mention the resurrection or the ascension. Both, of course, are implied, but neither of those events feature as a central element of the gospel. What really matters is that he died, and that's where it stops. Because when the gospel is about us, we can stop at Jesus' death. Why? Because Jesus' death removes the barrier between us and our destiny. The sin problem is taken care of, the way to heaven is open, and we can stop there. When was the last time you heard a gospel presentation that emphasizes the resurrection and ascension? However, when we understand that the gospel is first and foremost a story about Jesus, the resurrection and the ascension become the most important parts of that story. And in fact, they tell us this is what the gospel is about. This is the culmination of what Jesus came to do on earth. So let's just start at the beginning. Jesus' ministry begins after his baptism with an announcement. He proclaims, Mark 1, 15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus arrives on the scene of human history at the end of a long story. He says, the time is fulfilled. He announces that things have been moving toward this decisive moment. And that history has now come to its culmination. And the promised kingdom is finally at hand. Now, what is the kingdom? It's essentially about regime change. The kingdom is about regime change. So Jesus calls his message gospel. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Or the same word is euangelion in the Greek which in the ancient world, euangelion, was a political announcement. 
So a herald would go by and proclaim, there's a new king or a new emperor or uh, an heir to the throne has been born, something along those lines. So in our day, euangelion would be a State of the Union address telling us that the war is over and that the troops are coming home. It would be an announcement that the president has signed the Emancipation Proclamation and that the slaves are free. Or closer to our day, it would be an announcement that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. In short, euangelion, gospel is news. It's an announcement that things are changing. Something has happened, and so now things are different. And Jesus' gospel, his euangelion, is about a kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, in the original, kingdom is the word basalia, and it simply means rule or reign. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's announcing that God's reign is at hand, that God's rule has arrived, and that a regime change is underway. At last, God is acting to put things right. He has showed up to restore his creation that has been marred by sin and death. Now, what does that look like when God sets things right again, when God comes to renew what has been broken? Well, it looks like takeover. It looks like invasion. It looks like one kingdom breaking in against another. So notice, from the very beginning, the first time it was preached, the gospel has a distinctly royal tone. It even has a political edge about it. It's not, first and foremost, a message about going to heaven. Jesus doesn't show up and say, the good news is, I'll show you the way to get to heaven. Of course, that's part of it. Nor does he come up and say, the good news is that through me, you can have a full and meaningful life. He doesn't say that either. He says the good news is that God's kingdom has arrived. It's at hand, and God is taking over the world once more. And of course, Jesus is the king over this kingdom. Prior to his birth, in the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and he announces to her, what is going to happen, and who this child is that she's going to have. He says, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus' story He's introduced into history with a royal promise that he will reign forever and that his kingdom will have no end. His story begins with the royal promise and his story ends with that promise becoming a reality. Now, the last chapter of the gospel, as it's told by the apostles, is always the ascension or some sort of... uh, conclusion about how Jesus is now Lord or judge. He's been raised into heaven and been seated on the throne. Do you guys know um, the, the, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? The passage that shows up more in the New Testament than any other from the Old Testament. 
John 3.16, or maybe you would think maybe it's like Isaiah 53 or one of those other ones. It's, in fact, Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the psalm, this is the Old Testament passage that's quoted more than any other. And it reads as follows. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, interestingly, there are two lords in this passage. The Lord and my Lord. So the psalmist here records how the Lord, as in God, is speaking to my Lord, as in the Messiah or the Christ. Now, what does he say? Or or rather, it's the Lord speaking to my Lord. So that's God speaking to Jesus. And what does he say to him? Well, he invites him to sit at his right hand which is the position of highest authority in the universe. Jesus is God's right-hand man, so to speak, through whom he governs the world and through whom he will ultimately judge and perfect his creation. Jesus finishes his work and God says, sit at my right hand. In short, Jesus' earthly ministry ends with him being made Lord over heaven and earth. Think of how the Gospel of Matthew ends. He appears to his disciples, and what is the first thing he says, says, says to them at, uh, before he commissions them? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. A claim to his lordship. It all belongs to me now. Now, for what purpose? Well, as the psalm says, God is making his enemies a footstool for his feet. It's a poetic way of saying that Jesus, or that God, is bringing everything in subjection to Jesus. Even his enemies will be defeated. And even his enemies will become subservient to him. They'll be made his footstool. And that's where the gospel ends. Not with the crucifixion, but with the throne. It ends with Jesus triumphant and victorious, seated at the right hand on high. So back to the original point. The leading edge of the gospel is not a wager on heaven or hell, right? Which one are you going to choose? Rather, the leading edge of the gospel is a royal proclamation that the king has assumed his throne, that the crucified man is establishing his kingdom over all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. And that message, when we've been told God has a king over everything. It leaves us with a decision to make. Will we call upon this king to rescue us? Will we serve him and his kingdom? Or will we refuse and face his judgment? And that's where this business about our destiny comes in. It follows the message of Jesus' kingship. Because the king promises to return. And when he does, this is how it will go. His own words, Matthew chapter 13 Verses 41 through 43. He says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Imagine for a moment that you're a peasant. And you're serving a corrupt and oppressive king. And word comes to you 
that this king has been defeated in battle, that he's been captured and executed. And the conquering king is taking over. And it's he who sends you this message. And he's welcoming you into his kingdom where the laws are good and the land is prosperous. He welcomes you. Now, what are you going to do? You have, at this point, two options. You can resist. And you can face the same fate as the previous king. The choice is yours. Or you can repent and serve this new king. He welcomes you. He desires you to be a part of his kingdom. But the choice is yours. The gospel is an announcement something like that. Jesus is king. This whole ship belongs to him now. And one day he's going to come and he's going to settle everything according to his will. And you can be on one side of that or the other. Will you serve the king or will you not? Now it also changes not just how we sort of present the gospel, but what we invite people into. You know, when someone chooses Jesus simply not to go to hell, at that point, the real drama is over. They have got their fire insurance, and they can wait contentedly till it's time to come and make a claim. I'm sure some of you have thought that yourselves. I mean, that's for me, like when I became a Christian, it was like, well, what now? Okay, I'm going to heaven. I guess I'll go to church. I'll I'll try to be good, and I'll just wait till my time comes. But when the gospel is a royal announcement about king and kingdom, things are different. One is being summoned, enlisted into a cosmic struggle, the war of the Lamb and his saints against the dragon and his demons. Responding to the gospel is not the end, it's the beginning. And the church is not a doomsday bunker that we hang out in until we get to go to heaven. It's a colony of the kingdom that's planted behind enemy lines to subvert his kingdom. The gospel is a royal proclamation. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now our last point is that the gospel is public truth. Jesus' enthronement as king is not a personal or private message. It's a historical fact. It's just the way things are. And it matters not for him or for her. It matters not for this one or that one, but for everyone. See, when the gospel is reduced to a story about us, it's often reduced to a formula. For instance, in our tract, we had the three R's. Recognize, realize, and receive. Or you've heard of the four spiritual laws or the Romans road. They're formulaic. Now, what's the problem here? Well, on the one hand, nothing. Everything included in those, uh, uh, in those formulas is true. There's nothing there to dispute. We agree with the complete content of that. On the other hand, there's a lot to dispute. Chiefly, it's that this formulaic approach to the gospel takes it out of the realm of history. It's about timeless, eternal, and spiritual truths, things that stand above history or even outside history. And to get in, we have to just follow the formula. Now, what's the problem here? Well, it's that the gospel is not a formula dropped from heaven, but it concerns real events that happened in human history. Again, the word gospel simply means good news. 
it's not a philosophical system, like a body of timeless truths, like you'd find maybe with Aristotle or Plato, nor is it moral instruction. The gospel is not a system of rules and regulations. The gospel is simply news. It's an announcement or a report that events that have happened in human history. Namely, Jesus died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And the apostles are sent out into the world as eyewitnesses of these events. While the world was not looking, while they were paying attention to other things, something good happened away in Nazareth, Galilee, and Jerusalem. And the apostles are sent out into the world to tell what happened. Listen, they're, they're saying, we've seen it. That's what Peter said in Acts 10. We were eyewitnesses. We saw what Jesus did. We saw him put to death. We met him after he rose from the dead, and now he's ascended into heaven. So the nature of their proclamation is very simple. They're saying, this happened. These events took place in human history. So the apostles are eyewitnesses. They're not philosophers or activists. So the gospel is news. Now, why is that important? Why does it matter that the gospel is news? Well, one, it reminds us that salvation is completed. It happened while we were away doing other things. And it's reported to us after the fact. The decisive event in the history of the world has already taken place, and we can only respond to it. And that keeps us from distorting the gospel and turning news into advice. It's not a message about what we need to do to be saved. Rather, it just announces salvation has come. It comes to us as news, and we have to decide what are we going to do with it. Are we going to reorient our life around this news, or are we going to go on as before? And that leads us to our second point. Because the gospel is news, it's public truth. Again, it's not only for him or for her. It's not for some people as opposed to others. It's true for all. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if something happens, that is, an event in human history, it's true for everyone. For instance, we just remembered the anniversary of 9-11, the terrorist attacks upon the World Trade Centers. Now, those are events, or an event, that's true for everyone in the entire world. It happened. Now, its meaning can be debated, it can be even ignored or downplayed, but that fact remains true, regardless of what people think about it. Again, the gospel is something like that. It's not a private spiritual message. It's not a formula that we have to follow to go to heaven. It concerns events that happened in human history. And so the apostles come, and they're not imparting some secret knowledge. They're not telling us about spiritual mysteries. They're just reporting the facts facts that have implications for the entire human race. Think about when the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 was standing before King Festus. And Festus thinks, this Paul's out of his mind. He says, you've, you've learned too much. And, and Paul says to him, King Festus, these things didn't happen in a corner. He says, everybody knows about these. They're events that happen in human history. Now, why does this matter for us? Well, it helps us with evangelism. Have you noticed that when it comes to religion or faith, modern people become very reluctant and sheepish about it? You know, they'll say, 
I don't believe in pushing religion on people. Or they'll say, it's a deeply personal matter. For us, in the modern world, religion is something that's stored away in the private, interior, and personal realm. All right? This is something that is between you and your God, and it doesn't concern anyone else, right? You don't need to get involved in their business. They don't need to get involved in your business. You just keep that in your private little realm. Now, that's fine if we believe that the gospel is about inward spiritual realities, right? That it's some message of enlightenment. It's not. The gospel is not that kind of message. Instead, the gospel is about, and it concerns itself with actual events in human history. It concerns itself with things that happened. We believe that Jesus died and rose again like we believe that World War II ended on September 2nd, 1945. We believe that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God like we believe that the United States declared independence on July 4th, 1776. It's not for us a private or uh, uh, mystical thing. It's simply a fact of history. We're saying We believe God did these things. So we might put it this way. The good news is not religion. It's not relationship. It's history. It's an announcement of events that actually happened. It's not true for some. It's true for all. It can't be put in this little box marked personal. It touches on every aspect of human existence. So Jesus is not his or her personal Lord. He is Lord. Point blank. So what we're trying to recover here is conflict. We're trying to recover conflict because when the gospel is made out to be an inward and private matter, it can be safely placed along other gospels and other messages and other paths that people can take. It's like in the modern world, it's like we're all shoppers and displayed on the racks before us are all the different religions and worldviews that we can choose and purchase. And the gospel is one among them, right? I can have a little bit of the gospel. I can have a little bit of enlightenment. I can have some uh, New Age mysticism. I can go and purchase what I'd like. And so the problem here is that as long as the gospel is one option among many, it's never allowed to confront those other options. The only confrontation there is in the individual. What am I going to choose? Even then, it's not that hard of a choice because you can choose again and again and again until you find what fits or what you like. So we don't want to give the impression that this is somehow, you know, a message solely for you. What we want to say is that, no, this just happened and you have to respond to it. So if we said, you know, hey, you can, I don't know how you would frame it, but What I'm imagining is it'd be like saying, if you accept in your heart that the United States declared independence on July 4, 1776, you can experience the freedoms of our nation. It almost just doesn't even make sense. No, it happened. Instead, we're trying to say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, and you have to reckon with him. God has done this. It's a fact of life. You can either accept it or deny it. You can align yourself with it, or you can choose to go your own way. So the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. The gospel is a royal proclamation, and the gospel is public truth. And just as I wrap things up here, what I want to do, and what we'll do the remainder of this, is show you how 
that changes, and it, and it helps us to evangelize in our world, and we'll address those issues. So as it stands, we are those who accepted and have aligned ourselves with the message that Jesus is Lord. We proclaim him as Lord, who died and rose again for us and for our salvation. And that's what we proclaim, Paul says. You proclaim his death until he comes when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So I invite you guys to come forth to receive the elements, take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in just a moment.